these people were realizing that then this is a food that I need to stay away from that can cause this problem in me, knowing that I'm susceptible to it. Welcome to the Health Quest Podcast, your guide to God's will for your health. Hello, my name is Dr. Sal, and I've been practicing as a surgeon and as a physician for well over 30 years. And my goal for each episode is that you'll be able to transform your mind to God's design for your health and hopefully affect the way you eat and the way you live. If you're new here, we release a new episode every week. And if you enjoy the content, would you leave us a review? actually helps our ratings and allows our show to reach more people and in turn we can help other people as well thank you for your support and on today's episode we're going to be talking about the leaky gut so let's dive right on into today's health quest before i start i want to mention something uh, scripture from matthew chapter 7 verse 24 to 26 where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on rock. And in verse 26, he says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a fool who built his house on sand. So let's talk about leaky gut. We know that all the way from the esophagus all the way down to the anus, it's lined with one single layer of cells that we call epithelial cells. Now, if we took the intestinal lining and let's say we opened you up and we splayed the intestines open and we opened it up, it's a very extensive surface area. It actually is greater than 4,000 square feet of surface area. That's how much you've got wrapped up inside your belly. As you can see in the picture of the anatomy, we have four layers that are in the uh, yellow uh, colored stars where the outer layer or layer one um, is the lumen and actually the intestinal epithelial cells secrete this uh, this enzyme called the intestinal alkaline phosphatase and that basically neutralizes lipopolysaccharides which we're going to talk about in a later uh, podcast and that's one layer of protection and then the second one is the inner and outer mucin which are produced by the goblet cells, which is part of the lining uh, within the intestines. And then the third layer is the epithelial cells themselves, which have these little projectile finger-like projections, I'm sorry, finger-like projections that we call villi. Um, and that's what helps to increase the surface area of the intestines. And then in between the little villi that you see in those two little uh, finger-like projections, we have the antibacterial proteins that are secreted by the panath cells. So you could see that, uh, and then th that area just below that is the lamina propria, which is where all the uh, immune cells are held. Uh, so you could see that the intestines um, have uh, multi-purpose um, functions. But let's go over the three main functions of the intestinal lining. First of all, the objective is, is to obtain nutrients from our food. So it provides a vehicle for us to absorb 
minerals, amino acids, sugars, after they've been digested to a level that they can be absorbed. Secondly, they block the harmful particles and chemicals and other bacteria that's detrimental to our health. As I was mentioning before, from the anatomical picture that we showed earlier, that within the lamina propria, which is the baseline that holds these cells together, we have what is known as Peyer's patches, and this is filled with immune cells. And within those immune cells, we manufacture the immunoglobulins, which bind to the bacteria and the foreign proteins and prevent them from attaching to the gut. Because if they do, then it stimulates a local inflammation and that causes irritation and then breakdown of the lining of the gut. Now we're gonna get into some more specific details as we go along, so bear with me. So just remember that every organ system, as we talked about before, even in some of the earlier podcasts, uh, even the fat cells have immune cells. So it's part of the immune system and the gut lining has its own uh, immune system as well. And the two pathways in which we absorb the nutrients, whether they're amino acids or minerals or vitamins, is one by the transcellular pathways, which means they go through the actual cells themselves. And the second pathway, which we call the paracellular, is where the nutrients pass between the epithelial cells. And the junctions um, that join these cells together are called tight junctions, or the more scientific term is called the zonula occludens. Zonula occludens. And it's like the mortar that you see in between the bricks that holds the bricks together. And these tight junctions act as the gatekeepers that police what should be allowed in, like nutrients, and keep out the potential threats, uh, like ba bad bacteria and other chemicals that we've ingested or that are floating around in our intestines. So when the intestinal barrier is compromised, then you're susceptible to a whole spectrum of health challenges. From the gastrointestinal system, right, you can get a lot of gas, you get a lot of bloating, a lot of pain. Um, and these are some of the symptoms that occur as a result of the local inflammation. Uh, systemically, if some of these things get into your bloodstream, then they can cause a whole host of disorders like your skin disorders, like eczema and psoriasis and um, arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. This all starts in the gut, folks. All this stuff that gets in sparks these immune responses and this is what we end up getting. Um, they are also a cause of the type 1 and type 2 diabetes, which we're going to talk later in this podcast, and we're going to support it with evidence, too. Everything here is evidence-based. We support it with scientific articles, whether medical journal articles or scientific articles. Uh, they are con you know, contributor to asthma and allergies, and they can also um, cause a lot of neurologic disorders like cognitive decline, which eventually leads to dementias and the Alzheimer's, the Parkinson's, and even autism. So the leaky gut is something that's real, and it happens. However, I want to read you um, something from an article that I, that I got off the Internet. It talks about leaky gut, and it's by a doctor whose name wasn't mentioned in this article, and it's from the Cleveland Clinic. And... The reason why I bring this up is because numerous, numerous times my patients will come up to me and say, well, Dr. Cavalier, how come my doctor didn't say that? Or how come my doctor didn't tell me that? And 
I'll always go to these people and I'll say things such as, well, does your doctor speak Arabic? Now, I've got to be careful in Detroit because Detroit has the second largest population of Arabs outside of the Middle East. So, and the reason why I say that, you know, the, the uh, Arab language is because it's a very difficult lang language to speak. And of course, you know, they'll turn around and say, well, no, he doesn't speak Arabic or she doesn't speak Arabic. And I'll say, well, why not? And they'll say something like, well, because they never studied it. And that's exactly my point. The eyes cannot see what the mind does not know. However, once in a while you get a doctor, a physician, whether MD or DO, that'll make a statement because they, I believe they just haven't studied or researched these uh, underlying issues that well. And this one doctor from the Cleveland Clinic, talking about leaky gut, says that the theory, so he's mentioning it as a theory, has some appeal as a way of explaining various conditions that we haven't been able to fully explain yet. But the evidence is lacking right there. So I'm going to show it to you. And then when you go to our webpage, we've got the references. And the references that I'm giving you is just a fraction of the references that are out there that talk about leaky gut. We know uh, leaky gut is real, but we don't know that it's a disease in itself and or that it causes other diseases. So this is something from the Cleveland Clinic. So somebody, you know, this physician who probably wrote that would probably argue the stuff that I'm talking about today. But then again, you'll see that we're going to show uh, and even discuss in today's podcast that there are articles out there um, that confirm that this is a real disorder and that this is where these disorders that we talked about earlier systemically that affects the kidneys, uh, the, the joints, the respiratory system, the uh, integumentary system, that's, that's your skin, you know, in the form of allergies or eczema or psoriasis, all starts with the gut. And so I'm going to start it off by talking about Dr. Alessio Fasano out of the University of Baltimore uh, School of Medicine. And he published a landmark article in Physiology Review in January of 2011. And what he did is he established the relationship between gluten consumption, now gluten is a wheat product, and bacteria that increased gut permeability and inflammation throughout the body. And I just want to um, read one, something that he mentioned. The deregulated uh, intestinal system um, makes a, an individual susceptible to intestinal and extra-intestinal autoimmune inflammatory and neoplastic disorders that can occur from a leaky gut. So what he did in this study uh, is that he discusses an enteral toxin called zonula occludens toxin or ZOT that's produced by a bacteria called vibral cholera. Now this vibral cholera, remember the term cholera ends up giving you diarrhea, right? And so this toxin zot affects the tight junctions competency. It starts to break it down. But in one respect, it is part of the immune system's uh, defense mechanism in what it does in opening up those paracellular pathways, that area between the cells that eventually flushes out the organism that contributes uh, to part of our immune system. Now, remember when you went to uh, 
to Mexico. And you would get so-called Montezuma's revenge. And then what people used to do, especially we Americans, we would go to the pharmacy and, and get Imodal, which was a, an over-the-counter medication that would somewhat slow down these uh, episodes that you were having while you were in Mexico. After all, you were only going to be there down for a few days, and you wanted to have a good time. And the last thing you wanted was, you know, watery stools. And then there were people that would say, oh, don't take that. You don't want to plug yourself up. You want to flush that stuff out. So in one respect, uh, the body doing this was a way to flush out this organism and get it out of our system. And hopefully we would help repair it by eating a healthier diet thereafter. And so he discovered that there's this zot that's created by this uh, this bacteria. But then Dr. Fasano uh, in this study was saying that he, he's, he was saying that somehow I believe that there's an endogenous modulator that we make something in our body that's very similar to this toxin. And he believed that uh, it was in the epithelial cells or the lining of the intestines that uh, we actually make this this protein. And so he discovered it and he ended up calling it zonulin. That's made by the intestinal cells or the tissue that can reduce the effectiveness of those tight junctions, uh, particularly in the small intestines. And this has been um, confirmed uh, with numerous studies that we have, again, we've listed uh, in our, um, on our webpage, you know, Clementi in 2003, uh, Dr. Wang in 2000, Fasano again back in 2000. So even 23 years ago, we, we understood this. And he showed that glut gluten, particularly gliadin, um, which we're going to talk about uh, here shortly, um, is one of the most powerful triggers that releases this protein we call zonulin. And he also in 2012, Dr. Fasano showed that this zonulin was involved with the immune system and associated with all these autoimmune disorders. So, and the way it works is that it activates this um, epidermal growth factor and the zonulin binds to this receptor. Now, remember the receptor like uh, locks on a cell and the zonulin or these proteins are the keys, just like insulin. Right, it's a lock and key um, idea of how this stuff all works. And so it binds to this receptor uh, for epidermal growth factor, and it initiates this cascading event that results in a disorganization and an altered expression of the proteins that make up those tight junctions. So in other words, you're building a house and you're slapping the bricks and the mortar all in a disorganized manner and then the owner comes by to take a look at it and says well what the heck did you do to my house because you know the bricks are aligned in a special order the studs that you know make up the walls inside the home have an organized fashion to sustain the house and maintain its integrity what's well, the same thing with the body folks you know if you if you create an abnormal structure uh, of these areas then it starts to fall apart and gluten, which is the protein portion of wheat, and it's made up of two proteins, uh, the gliadins and the, the glutinins. And it is this gluten that actually sparks, or these gliadins, well, gliadins do the same thing. You're going to see how both of them actually work separately to produce this zonulin. And let's talk about gluten 
um, you know, the, the Latin derivative of gluten means to stick. And that's why when you see people making pizza and they're stretching out the dough, it's what helps the dough to stick together. And gluten sticky attributes interferes with the breakdown and absorption of the nutrients that lead to poorly digested foods. And then it sounds the alarm in the immune system. And all of a sudden, you've got this local inflammation that's taking place down in the uh, gut lining. The hallmark of gluten sensitivity is elevated levels of antibodies against gliadin, which you can get a test for. And we'll talk about that at the end of this podcast. Uh, so now we've talked about gluten being this protein that's in wheat. And then part of the uh, gluten is made up of these gliadins and the glutenin. So what is a gliadin? Well, it's one component of the gluten. Um, and as I said, the other one is the glutenin. And it's a storage protein, and it's made up of 12 smaller units, and this is what increases the intestinal permeability that we talked about by uh, breaking down the tight junctions. But the gliadins have a same effect as well. So these um, once these gliadins start to break down the tight junctions and they pass into the bloodstream, um, the body starts to produce these antibodies against these gliadins and we form these anti-gliadin antibodies. Now these cross react with certain brain proteins and they bind to neuronal proteins that contribute to neuropathies, ataxia, which is imbalance, seizures, neurobehavioral changes like anxiety and depression. How does this all do this? Again, we talked about the reorganization of the, um, of the actin filaments. And so it starts to break down those tight junction proteins. Um, and then what ends up happening is that, is uh, stimulating the receptors, it starts to increase the proliferation of more cells in the crypts and the villi that we showed in that picture. And this is very highly characteristic of damage to mucosa that we see in the celiac disease patients. Um, and so it, it stimulates this uh, epithelial growth factor and this epithelial growth factor stimulates the proliferation or the manufacturing of more cells. But just because you have more cells doesn't mean that they're functioning properly. Um, so you end up with these immature cells and an abnormality in the structure of those, those little finger-like projections. Um, Justin Holland, in his works in nutrients that was published in 2015, and Dr. William Davis, a cardiologist who wrote the book Wheat Belly, uh, said that increased intestinal permeability after gliadin exposure occurs in all individuals. That means you and I, folks. So every time we consume wheat, and of course, you have to understand something, you know, my, my aunt who's originally from Italy, said, well, they eat pasta and bread in Italy. But the wheat that they use to make, to make that in these countries, particularly Europe, are natural. They're not genetically modified. So uh, Dr. Davis, and I'm, one day I'm going to um, go over his book in one of the podcasts, talks about how the genetically modified wheat in America has much more gluten and much more gliadin. So every single one of us is has uh, some level of intestinal permeability after we get exposed to this. 
However, it just, it's demonstrated more so in celiac patients, and of course, they have more of these symptoms. There's a number of studies that uh, provide evidence that increased um, uh, permeability occurred before either histological, which means we take a look at the uh, cells under the microscope, or overt manifestations of diabetes. And so it's been implicated that this gliadin, which comes from gluten, which is in wheat, is a dietary diabetogen. Um, so let me just grab these articles that I come up with. So in the journal Diabetes in May of 2006, Anna Saponi uh, writes that zonulin upregulation, so the regulation or production of more zonulin seems to precede the onset of the disease providing a possible link between increased intestinal permeability, environmental exposure to non-self antigens, and the development of autoimmunity. And so we're starting to see that these are the, um, uh, the, the autoimmunity is what eventually results in the type 1 diabetes because the immune system starts to attack the pancreas. And then uh, Tamara Watts, in the uh, journal of PNAS, which is a research journal, published an article in February 2005 saying that these uh, findings suggest that the zonulin-induced loss in small intestinal barrier function is involved in the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes. It, it sparks this autoimmune disorder that eventually attacks the pancreas, especially the beta cells, that produce and manufacture the insulin, and that's how we can develop type 1 diabetes. Um, I want to also mention in another journal article in the Annals of New York Academy of Science, uh, and this was published uh, by Fasano back in July of uh, 2001, that certain HLA class 2 alleles account for 40% of the genetic susceptibility to type 1 diabetes, and Caucasians. Now, these HLA um, uh, alleles, this is the, uh, the genes that were identified that make people susceptible to developing type 1 diabetes. And it says here, however, the majority of individuals with this type of genetic susceptibility do not develop type 1 diabetes. And you would say, well, if they were genetically susceptible to developing this, then why didn't they? Again, this is um, where it says, this supports the concept that reaction to some environmental products triggers autoimmune destruction of the beta cell and leads to type 1 diabetes. So even people who could potentially be genetically susceptible don't get it because these people were realizing that then this is a food that I need to stay away from that can cause this problem in me, knowing that I'm susceptible to it. I remember a friend of mine was claiming that he was genetically susceptible to becoming an alcoholic because his parents were alcoholics. And so therefore he decided never to drink alcohol because he was worried about eventually becoming an alcoholic. So the same thing that in this article is saying that, you know, People who have a genetic susceptibility didn't develop it because they stayed away from the foods or the environmental factor 
that can cause this. That's why I'm saying that you really are a product of your environment. And so what you eat is what can cause a lot of these problems that we were talking about, and we're supporting it. Um, so there's enough documentation to show that everyone can develop leaky gut and all other systemic disorders, whether you have a sensitivity to gluten or not. My recommendation is really to eliminate wheat or gluten-containing foods in your diet, and that's why I always prefer the paleo diet. Now, this isn't something that you do for a few days. This is a diet that you would, you know, try for three to six months, uh, and you'll start to notice changes in your health. I, I noticed that um, I have uh, psoriasis, for instance, and I had it on my ankles, and my father had it, my grandfather had it, and I thought, oh, okay, so years ago, I believed that this was just a genetic disorder. Well, when I, you know, go on the Atkins diet, when I was competing for bodybuilding competitions, I noticed that the psoriasis would go away. And so when I, you know, changed over to the paleo diet, which is a lot of vegetables and protein, I noticed that I don't have the problem with any of the psoriasis. And I'm telling you folks right now, for those of you with psoriasis, whether you're taking all this medication from your dermatologist, go off of gluten products or all wheat products for three to six months, and I guarantee you 80% of your psoriasis will improve. Um, if you do this type of lifestyle change, you reduce the risk of any of, this, any of these disorders that we talked about and improve the quality of your life as you get better and better. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Okay, he who practices the words that I'm mentioning is like a wise man who builds his house on rock. But if you're going to hear these words and not put them into practice, then you're like the fool who's building their house on sand. And what I'm saying is, is today you might think, well, but I feel fine and I don't have any of these problems. But as time goes on and we get a little bit older, and we start noticing these problems and hopefully you might reflect back and say, I remember when Dr. Sal said these things to me. So with that, I'd like to thank you so much for watching our show. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a review and visit our website and social media accounts to connect with us more. And if you'd like to see any of these sources of research in this episode, it will be available in the show notes and description. With that, I'm Dr. Sal. Have a wonderful day and God bless.